you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you open them up to Colossians chapter 3? See how long my voice lasts. Last week we looked at uh, verse 12 in Colossians chapter 3. And we saw who we are. If you're a Christian, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ for your eternal destination, then Paul clearly told us who you are. And he said three things about who you are. He says you're the chosen ones. meaning that God set his sights on you. He invited you to his team to line up behind our captain, Jesus Christ. He also said you're holy. You know, that's probably one of the least understood doctrines of the Christian faith. Christian friends, you know what it means to be holy? It means that God took you out of the world, out of the common. And he took you and he placed you into his grace. And when he brought you and he placed you into his grace, then he separated you from your former life. Because over here, sin had mastery. Before you came to Christ, you could not help but sin. And now you're over here and you've got freedom to not sin in the power of God. And you're now given a purpose for your life. You're set apart from the world for God. To be holy means you belong to God. You no longer belong to the world. To be holy means you now have freedom. Whereas before you didn't have freedom. We're the holy ones. That's who we are by way of identity. And thirdly and finally, Paul said... We are the beloved. Now, friends, listen, I cannot tell you. I I wish I could find better words. I just don't know them. But I just got to tell you that God is absolutely smitten with you. He absolutely loves you. Now, can you do me a favor? We just close your eyes for a second. I'm not going to do anything weird. You don't need to respond. Just I want you to think without distractions. Can you close your eyes? Do you know, moms and dads, that when you pick up your little child and you hold them so tightly and you swing them around and around and your heart is soaring, do you know that's what the Bible says God does with you? Read it, Zephaniah. He dances over you with delight. You ever serenaded your loved one? You ever sang to them? Did you know that's what God's doing to you? He sings over you. He loves you. You are the apple of his eye. You are his treasured possession. You didn't earn a drop of that love. You'll never unearn it. It's there. Now open your eyes. I want you to know who you are because, listen, if you don't know who you are, In Christ, I'm going to tell you right now, it's absolutely impossible to live out this sermon. It's like going up to the starting line in a race car and hitting the accelerator. 
And nothing moves because there's no engine in your car. The engine in the car of Christian grace living is your identity. You need to know who you are, and knowing who you are empowers you to live out these eight virtues that Paul tells us to put on. Now, what do I mean by put on? Let's look, Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. In the English Standard Version and in the Greek, it starts out this way, put on then. What's it mean to put on? Well, there's, there's more to this than you might realize. Number one, friends, listen, this is not a request. This is Paul saying, okay, you're taking a trip to the Antarctic, you better put on some parkas because you won't survive it. This is Paul saying that if you want to live out grace, you want to live like the chosen, holy, and loved ones of God, then this is what you've got to put on in order to be successful. It's a command. It's like a military officer moving his troops with a command. It's not pleading. It's not a request. This is an order. Friends, I'm going to give you this morning what Paul gives us, eight virtues that we've got to dress ourselves in every single day and they're all commands they're not options so if you want to live in the pleasure of god if you want to live in fellowship with god then i don't think i'm overstating it that you must apply these this morning and learn to live in them as a habit and i do too there's more to put on though and you know in the greek there's a note of urgency here it means to envelop yourself now listen it means to pull onto yourself like a sweater that's what the word means but there's even something more about this yes it's a verb and yes we all know that verbs are action words it's something we've got to do but listen it's also in a greek tense that says god's not going to put these on you god's already given you everything you need to wear they're in your wardrobe but you've got to pull them out you've got to put them on it's your responsibility it's a greek tense that says it's my job to dress this way god bought the clothes through christ and they're readily available but if you don't consciously and intentionally put them on you won't live out grace that's all of what it, well, it's probably more, but that's what put on then means. And it's now that we know all of that, that we can start to say, okay, well, what is it that we're supposed to put on? Let's open this drawer. Let's open our dresser. Let's pull out these eight articles of clothing, all made of grace, and let's dress in them. Why? Well, verse 18, chiefly for our marriage's sake. And not only marriages, but our families' sakes with our children. In fact, friends, you might be here and for the last 10 weeks, you might have been trying to endure, saying, I'm not married, I can't stand the thought of being married, I don't know why he's preaching 12 weeks on marriage. Well, now I can finally tell you, besides stop whining, I, did I say that? I'm sorry. Sometimes things slip out. What I really meant to say is, now I can tell you that this involves every relationship you'll ever have. This is to be put on for every relationship between brothers and sisters, children and parents, parents with one another, your coworkers, your neighbors. This is all of what you're supposed to wear. And what I'm asking you to do right now, even men, 
I can't believe I have the audacity to ask you this, but men, pull out your outline, if you would. I'm going to wait. I have to be like this. Because men just look at me with stony-looking faces. Pull out your outline. And even if you don't have anything in your hand, pretend to write something down and make me feel better. But I want you to answer the question after every one of these points. Believe me, if you're going to do your application this week with your spouse, you're going to need this. I want you to answer, do I regularly dress in compassion with my spouse and, reg- and all the way down through the eight articles of clothing? And you'll see at the end the application for it. Well, let's look at them. Here we go. You ready? Let's slide open your dresser drawer. Let's look at all the clothing laid out there that God has already purchased through his son, Jesus Christ. And they're enabling us to live like his chosen, holy, and loved ones and impact the world and our marriages. And here's the first one that Paul says, pull it out and put it on. It's compassion. Did you know, by the way, let me just ask you, raise your hand if you're brave enough. Did you know, how many of you knew that this word compassion is actually plural? We're used to thinking it's singular. All right, I did my act of compassion early on in my marriage and I'm done. This is a plural. It's over and over, act after act of compassion It means in the Greek something that is alien to our ears. It means to have your bowels yearning. Now, when we say have your bowels yearning, you're running for the toilet. I understand that. But in the Greek mind, the bowels were the deepest part of a person possible. So that when Jesus sees that widow's only son dead and they're carrying him out to the funeral in the funeral to the cemetery, it says that his heart was moved with compassion. Here's what it means, you ready? The very deepest part of Jesus lurched with emotion. Something moved, something erupted in him with emotion. We say it this way, and I'm going to put it in our language. My heart aches for you. Or that was a gut-wrenching experience that you had to go through. It's to have a heart. Here's what compassion is. It's to have a heart that breaks and aches for the distress of other people. Now, friends, listen, husbands and wives, let me ask you, how compassionate, really, are you for your spouse? When your spouse is going through hard times, physically or emotionally or mentally or spiritually with their job, with their children. When your spouse goes through difficulty, does your heart move for him or her? Well, children, you're not off the hook either. You're supposed to put these on as well. So let me ask you, when your brothers and when your sisters and when your friends go through distressing times, is anything happening in your heart by way of compassion? Friends, listen, and I think it's worthy to be written down. The most accurate measure of a heart of compassion begins at home with your own families. Everybody's heart moves when you see emaciated, starving children on television. I mean, come on, if you're not moving to that, you're dead. Something happens in us. 
But that's not really compassion. That's pity. Unless you do something about it, then it becomes compassion. But when you're at home, does your heart move towards those who you love? Something happens in marriage. And I understand this. It can happen in me as well. Something happens. I can feel compassion for people in the church. But when my own wife is struggling, something just short circuits sometimes. But God's chosen, holy, and loved children, that's us in Christ, we're filled with this grace. And we need to put it on us every single day. Friends, did you know that in Paul's world, ancient Greek culture, the handicapped, the weak, they just didn't even survive. They didn't even care about suffering animals. There was no provision for the elderly. Those who suffered from mental illnesses, they were cast off. I mean, don't you remember Jesus going across the Sea of Galilee to the Gadarenes and the Decapolis, the place of ten cities and goes and there's this man who is mentally and demonically oppressed and he's cast off from everybody he lives in the cemetery that was the measurement the barometer of the ancient greek culture there was no compassion and it wasn't until christianity spread throughout the world that the world ever even tasted compassion in fact William Barclay wrote this, it's not too much to say that everything that's been done for the elderly, the sick, the weak, in body and in mind, animals, children, and women, it's been done through the inspiration of Christianity. We ought to be, of all people, the most compassionate and of all relationships in our marriages. And Paul says, put it on. Pull it out and put it on. So you look back at your outline and men and ladies and teens. Do I regularly dress in compassion for my spouse, for my siblings, for my friends? What's your answer? Well, Paul says, pull that drawer open again. I've got number two coming. Pull it out. Put it on. It's called kindness. Do You know what kindness is? Kindness is compassion in action. That's what it means to be kind in the Bible. It's the same word that was used for wine that had grown old and mellowed with age and lost its harshness. It is, it's the disposition that doesn't respond to hurtful people with hurt, but instead returns to hurtful people gentleness. In fact, Josephus, he's a Jewish historian, he used this word kindness to describe Abraham's son Isaac, who would dig wells and then give them to people instead of fighting over them. That's what it means to be kind. Maybe it's a smile. Maybe it's a hug. Maybe it's a kind word or a gift of money. Maybe it's even taking a couple's children for the evening so that that couple could get away with, for a much needed date. It's all of these that are kindness. In fact, the kind husband is as concerned about his wife's good as his own, and she's as concerned about his good as she is her own. Friends, can I ask you a question? Now, answer this honestly. Don't look at your spouse. Don't even glance, men. <clears throat> Are you married to 
an unbeliever or a person that's away from the Lord. You know, nagging and berating and criticizing, friends, that has never ever worked to bring someone to Jesus Christ. They are completely graceless attempts. But kindness is filled with grace. It's an article of grace. It's the very expression of the heart of Jesus. In fact, it's God's kindness, that same word that's meant to lead you to repentance according to Romans 2. You see, kindness acts on what you feel in compassion. Compassion meets kindness. And you've got action with passion. That's kindness. But Paul says, reach back in there because I've got the third article for you and I want you to dress in humility. Now, friends, listen, let me remind you, your spouse can't dress you. God's not going to dress you. God's got all these articles of clothes. He's already bought them for you through the blood of Jesus. He's got them all there and they're in every single Christian's dresser. So no Christian can ever say, well, God just didn't make me compassionate. Well, if you're not compassionate, it's because you refuse to put it on. And compassion is an intentionality, not waiting for something to explode in my heart to make me want to. You put these on, they're commands, and they're urgent. We do it now. He says humility. Pull out humility and put it on. You know what John Stott says about humility? He's a... He's a commentary writer. He says it's the fairest and the rarest of all Christian virtues. That's humility. Friends, the Greeks in Paul's day, they didn't even have a word for humility. It wasn't even in their language. In fact, William Gladstone, the prime minister of England, he once remarked, while humility is the sovereign grace of Christianity, the Greeks had no symbol in their language to denote it. They used words that, that kind of came close to it, but all their words that came close to humility all had weakness and meanness as part of them. In fact, listen, the word that came closest to humility in the Greek was a word that described the cringing submission of a slave to his master. That's how the Greeks thought of humility. It was a term of contempt. And guess who it was used against? It was used to describe Christians. See, it, the word means low-lying. It means you lie low to the ground. And that was the exact opposite of what Greek culture, who thought themselves preeminent of all the cultures in the world, they wanted to elevate themselves. But God says, be humble, pull on humility, and friends, lie low to the ground. Meaning, don't rise up above everybody else. Don't try to get their attention. Don't try to get the accolades. Don't try to get the praise. Lie low to the ground. And in marriage, you try to give that praise to your spouse. You try to raise them up which is the exact opposite of pride, which wants to raise myself up. You know what humility really is? If I'm going to put it in practical layman terms, here's what humility really is. It's not thinking less of yourself, of who you are. It's thinking of yourself less and your neighbor more. It's shifting your attention off of you onto them. That's humility. 
In fact, Jonathan Edwards said, true humility does not put ourselves down, it lifts others up. Can you imagine what this looks like in marriage? It means that your day is most complete when you can raise your spouse up. You can not lower them through criticizing and demeaning and pointing out what they're doing wrong, but raise them up with your happiness, your favor. It's humility, which refuses to lower or diminish by demeaning and criticizing. Friends, you know what criticizing is. I mean, I know this experientially because I unfortunately tend to do this. You know what it means to criticize? You know why it's so rampant in marriages? I know so many couples who struggle with this. Here's why it's so rampant in marriage. Here it is. Criticism's main intent is to demean and weaken the other person so that you can maintain and sustain control. If you're married to a domineering, controlling person, they will criticize you because it's how they keep you weak enough to control. But humility says, I don't need to control you. Humility says, I want to love you. And in in loving you, I want to bring you up. I want to raise you up. I want to bring you the praise that you deserve. Paul says there's another article of clothing. It's all made out of grace. It's meekness. You know, we hear that word meek. And we think of somebody who's kind of mousy, kind of quiet, kind of weak. But the real meaning of the word cannot hardly be any more different. Meekness is gentleness undergirded by steel-like strength. It's strength or power under control that doesn't need to be on display. It's the choice. Friends, listen, here's what it looks like in marriage. It's the choice to waive your rights, setting them aside for the good of the other person. In fact, Aristotle, that philosopher, he identified meekness. He defined meekness as the happy midpoint between too much and too little anger. Which describes Moses, who was uh, very meek, number says, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Meek, Moses was, yet he was a decisive leader who rose up in righteous anger at the right time. You know, a meek husband is one who can lead courageously and graciously without lording it over his wife, who can lead her without dominating her. A meek wife is one who can give her power and her strength and her support to her husband without demanding her way, who's willing to give up her rights for her husband. That's what meekness looks like in marriage. In a marriage that's filled with meekness in both the husband and wife, there's nothing that could divide them because any threat, whether it's a person, whether it's a habit that's sinful, whether it's a, a career path that threatens to destroy, any of these things, they are met with righteous anger decisively by both. Because they determine to deal with conflict before it can ever divide or destroy their, their love. See, meekness is gentleness that disguises true grit. But Paul says, come on, open it up. I got a fifth article for you. 
And it's all grace, and you need to put it on. You've got to put it on if you're going to live like the chosen, holy, and loved ones. It's called patience. Patience, which literally means long-tempered, long-fused. It's the ability to persevere. You want to really know what patience is? It's the ability to endure and persevere in circumstances which are painful, difficult, and unfavorable. That's what patience is. You see, patience is this, that when you go into a trial, you don't try to find your shortcut out. You sit there and you wait in faith for God to bring you out of that trial in the proper time. That's patience and endurance that allows you to to wait. And when it's in marriage, patience is the exercise of endurance so that your spouse's refusal to change never drives you to despair or cynicism. And there are marriages that when they start out, they try to change their spouse. You know, you you marry with your ideal. And nobody is matching up to that ideal after they come away from the altar. So you've got to do a little remodeling. And you've got to change that person into the image, but that image really is your image, not God's. And until you accept through patience and humility and grace that God gave you this person for a reason, to complement your weaknesses, and yes, these differences really aren't threats, they're strengths, then you can learn to live and love and be in grace with one another. Patience allows you to begin to see that and love that. Paul says, though, reach in there again because there's number six coming. And it's bearing with one another. Bearing with one another, friends, is the ceasefire button. It's the flag, the truce flag that you wave. It means to, more than that, it means to support one another. It's not just put up with the faults in the other person. It means to actually move toward and support that other person. Make allowances, husbands and wives, for each other's faults. But you might say, Tim, you don't understand how many times and how many years I've got to do this. Nothing ever changes in my spouse. God's answer is this, Christian. If you're the chosen, holy, and loved ones of God, then his mercy, which is new every single morning, is flooding your heart. Why? Just to fill you up? No, to fill you up to overflow for your spouse. You know, constant irritation. I mean, come on, are you married to an irritable person? Denise, don't move. I gave her commands like I can actually do that. I said, Denise, I don't even really like you being here today, but if you insist on coming, don't nod your head, don't look at me, just look down. Because I don't want her to see me pointing at her for all these eight of them. No, I'm just kidding. Constant irritation. (laughs) Constant criticism. Friends, listen to me. They are never redemptive. And they always reveal, always, they always reveal a heart that is demanding, graceless, and bitter. God's wisdom is that he brought her to me and me to her. He brought your spouse to you. And the things that irritate you so much about that person are actually God's 
gifts to make you less harsh. They're God's gifts to teach you how to walk in grace. They're God's gifts to, to teach you how to forbear, how to overlook the faults in another the way that God does to you and me. Do you realize if you had your perfect spouse that never did anything that irritated you, you would be unbelievably immature in your faith? And that somehow when men are able to change their wives into their perfect image, their marriage always loses intimacy. Always. It's the reason God brought you two together. And it's to teach us to bear with one another. But then number seven, God says Paul through Paul, reach back in there. And this is really important one. You got to put this one on. It's called forgiving each other. Friends, there was a couple that was married for 15 years. But they began to struggle in their marriage. And they began to have more and more disagreements. It blew them out of the water. They've been having a great marriage. And all of a sudden, where's all this conflict coming from? But they wanted to make their marriage work. So they agreed on an idea that the wife came up with. For one month, they planned to drop a slip into two different fault boxes, one for him and one for her. And these boxes would provide a place to let the other person know about the daily irritations that was disrupting, that were disrupting their marriage. Things like leaving the jelly top off the jar, dirty socks not in the hamper, the house not cleaned, and on and on. And at the end of the month, they had dinner, and after dinner, they brought out these fault boxes and they exchanged their boxes and the, and the, the husband went first and he opened up his box and he took out slip after slip of paper and on each piece of paper was written one of the things that he had done that had irritated her during that month. And he said to her, honey, I'm sorry. I need you to forgive me and I, I need to work on these. And then she took out her fault box. As she opened it up, as she took out slip after slip of paper, but on each one of those pieces of paper was written the same exact message. It was, I love you. Friends, do you know what that did in the heart of that wife? The breaking and the humility that that grace brought to her and began to change that marriage from graceless into graceful. Why? Because he learned to forgive his wife. In fact, the word forgiving is a, in the Greek is charismai. Charis means grace. That's why we named our daughter Carissa. See, God's grace is his willing action to remove our sin and no longer count them against us. Now listen, think of this automatically towards marriage. It's the willing action to not count the other person's sins against them. To know how deeply God has loved us, chosen us, and made us holy. Friends, it empowers us to willingly, freely forgive our spouse. And we've all heard... Psalm 103, which says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And the usual explanation is this. 
that there's a North Pole and a South Pole. And when you go north, you're eventually going to hit the North Pole and go south. But there are no poles east to west. You can go east and you'll never, ever reach a pole. So God separated our sins from us for affinity. That's the usual explanation. But friends, listen, you really think David knew about the North and South Poles? Maybe there's a better explanation. And maybe that better explanation has to do something with what we learned from Genesis chapter 3 when God drove out the man and the woman from the garden where to the east and then Cain after killing his brother God ex uh, God expelled Cain into the east and when the nation of Israel came into the promised land they came out of the east into the west where God's presence was and maybe the temple the only entrance into the presence of God was from the east into the west maybe that provides a better explanation because the east is where God isn't and the west is where he is and when God forgives our sins and he wipes out our guilt and he cleans our record, he brings us out of the east, he brings us out of the common, he brings us out of the world and he puts us right into his presence, right into what the, the Bible describes as the west. And it's that way that we're to forgive each other. It's that way where there is an infinite separation between no God and all God. It's infinite between the two. And that's how we're to forgive one another. We're supposed to drop the charges. We're supposed to cancel the record. And when we do so, friends, listen to me, when we do that, we bring our spouses who are separated through, from sin back into our presence so that we have a relationship of peace and harmony. That's the beauty of forgiving. It restores what was lost. You know unforgiving people are, one of the, are some of the most graceless people, friends, that you will ever, ever meet in your life. But love forgives. Love drops the charges. Because you're pulling on forgiveness, and when you're pulling on forgiveness, your heart changes. And when your heart changes, it profoundly affects your marriage. And it leads us to the most important piece of clothing of all eight of them. It's the final one that Paul says, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Friends, did you know that everything is made up of atoms? And these are little particles that are in constant perpetual motion. They never stop. And when they get too far, when they get a little bit of distance from each other, there's a attracting force that pulls them together. And then when they get squeezed together, there's a repelling force that moves them apart. That's the nature of atomic particles. And it's so eerily similar to marriages. When you go away on that business trip, you kind of can't wait to come home and be with your wife. But then when you get together with your wife after a day or two, you kind of can't wait to go back on your business trip. That's what marriages do. Why? Because we're made of sinful people. Marriages are made up of two sinful people. And they repel each other all the time through conflict. And it's why we've got to put on this belt of grace which ties all of the other seven together. Friends, without love, none of the other seven work. Humility doesn't work. Patience doesn't work. Compassion doesn't work. 
Kindness doesn't work. Meekness doesn't work. Forgiveness doesn't work. Bearing with one another doesn't work. It all works with love. They know, none of them work without it. You know what Josh McDowell said? I love this. He talks about three kinds of love. Number one, there's I love you if. Come on, which one are you? Number two, I love you because. And number three, I love you in spite of. And he says the first two are conditional. I love you if you lose weight. I love you because you're so smart. It's called contract love. Both parties sign it. And if both parties uphold it, then there's a good, peaceful relationship. If one of them doesn't, they're in conflict. It's contractual love. And then he goes on. The third one is an example of covenant love, which goes, I love you in spite of your weaknesses. I love you in spite of your faults. And I love you in spite of the fact that you don't always love me. McDowell said that's the only kind of love that will last for a lifetime, conditional won't make it because what if she doesn't lose weight what if one day he can't think straight what's going to happen then will you still love her then will you stand still stand by his side god's love friends is covenant love it doesn't depend on the other person to work and it holds a marriage together because it does not depend on what the other person does. It's God's love pouring into your heart, Romans 5, 8, and overflowing to your spouse, regardless of what he or she is doing. Here's what Paul's saying. Every morning, before you get going on your day, put on every one of these eight articles of grace. And every day, because we tend to forget them, on your lunch break, take five minutes and cinch up the belt because the wardrobe's getting loose. And every day you're coming home from work or your spouse is starting to get home from work and you're at home getting dinner ready, you better go back through all eight of them because here comes the repelling nature of sin. Friends, it's a discipline to put these on. And we've all got to do them, and we all can, because all of the clothing are already ours. But they don't work until we put them on. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for your word. It is so clear. Thank you for teaching us through Paul, Lord, how to have a marriage or any relationship, Lord, that thrives in grace. Lord, I pray for me. I pray for my friends here. Pray for everybody in Christ that is in this sanctuary. Lord, that you will help us put these on every morning and adjust the belt every noon and to go back through them every time we're coming home. Help us learn that discipline of grace and let us get to enjoy the differences in our marriages. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.